Throughout the history of the church, the Gospels have always received a special place, not because they're more inspired than any other part of Scripture, but because they're the record of our Lord's life. And so each Sunday, we have a Gospel reading. And during that reading, we often ask people to stand um, in honor of our Lord. And so if you are comfortable doing so, I want to invite you, wherever you are now, to stand. Hear the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you join me in praying? Father, as we turn now to open your word and to hear it preached, Will you open our hearts and our minds to receive, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us to be more like Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the rules in my home was before you could get your driver's license, you had to be able to drive a manual transmission. That was not the case with most of my friends. And so I had this old Toyota pickup that my dad would let me use, manual transmission. And one of my friends wanted to learn how to drive it. So we went out, and it took quite a bit, a lot of stalling and stops and chugs and all this stuff. But eventually, he started to get the hang of it until we were on a back road. And not a lot of people out there, not a lot of people travel on this road, but... At the end, there's a stop sign to turn onto another road, and it ramps up. And so he gets to that point, and there happens to be a car there. He couldn't go all the way to the top. He's right at the bottom of this incline. And I don't know if you remember, but when you first learn to drive a stick, going up a hill from a stop position is very hard. And so he's right there, and he tries to do it, and we stall out. We start it up, he tries to do it, and we stall out. And we stall out. And we did this multiple times until, even though a lot, a lot of people are on this road, I started noticing some cars piling up behind us. Uh, we had a line trying to get through this stop sign until a police officer showed up. And he just pulls along the side, and he gets out, and he comes to the vehicle, and he says, boys, what seems to be the problem? Now, my friend, who was freaked out anyway, He's gripping the steering wheel so tightly, his knuckles are white. He can't look at the officer, and he just goes, I can't drive my friend's car. And the officer stops, and he looks, and he says, well, then why don't you let your friend drive his own car? And he helped us, and we got out of there and took off. And, but have you ever felt stalled out in your life? Maybe it was your career Maybe it was a relationship you were trying to get right. Maybe it was your spiritual life. Have you ever felt like maybe you've just kind of come upon a wall or you just don't have enough gas left or you're not sure how to put it in gear 
You just feel stuck. What do we do when we feel stuck, especially in our spiritual life? That is what we see today. As we go into this gospel passage, we're going to see that there are some folks who are stuck. They are stalled out. And Jesus is going to help them get what they need to get going again. If you have your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 16. Our primary text actually begins at verse 13, but the context is really important for this. And so we're going to look back and hit a few verses right from the beginning of chapter 16. Chapter 16 and verse 1, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. All right, we are quite a ways into the ministry of Jesus at this point. He has been doing so many miracles. He has healed people of being mute, of being blind. He has has healed lepers. He He has helped people who couldn't walk to stand again. He has even raised the dead. He has cast demons out of people. And yet, they want a sign? Jesus says, like, you can read the signs out here, but you can't see who I am or what I'm doing. What I am about is not clear by what the signs are that I perform all the time. Even to the point that he does this. Verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. I think Jesus is frustrated. He has been doing so much for years. And yet, right here, they are still asking him to prove himself. Here's what they're not doing. They're not getting on with the mission. They are stalled out. They are stuck. Still going, do more. Prove it. And he finally says, I'm done. And so he leaves and departs. Now here's the unfortunate thing. Verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, so you get a group of leaders who don't get Jesus at all and just keep saying, give us a sign no matter all the things he's doing. And so he gets to the, into the boat with the disciples and as they're going... He says, I want you to beware of them. But look what happens with the disciples. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. So they are not getting at all what Jesus is trying to do here. They are going, oh no. Like, what's happened? We forgot the bread. Which is kind of a big deal. There are no 7-Elevens on the corner for them to stop in and just grab some food. They live day to day, and so to forget that bread is significant. And yet, look what Jesus does here. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith. That's kind of a weird response. He could have done something like this. I don't mean that. I was talking symbolically. Leaven there, as Matthew will say later, is the teaching. Beware of the teaching of of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, because They don't get it. They're still demanding signs. They're missing the whole point. I'm about the kingdom of God, and they don't get that. So watch out for their teaching. But instead, he he goes after their faith. Oh, ye of little faith. 
And then he says a number of different things. And when you get to the bottom, he goes, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He just repeats himself. What's happening? Why does Jesus move to the issue of faith instead of just correcting their understanding? Because I think something is going on here that is deeper. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't get Jesus. They are stalled out. But the disciples, they don't get Jesus either. They are so worried and fearful of mundane things like bread that they miss what he's actually doing. They too don't get Jesus. Their fear is stronger than their understanding of who Jesus is. And so they're all concerned that they left the bread. And Jesus doesn't try to correct it by saying, this is what I meant. He says, I want you to look at your faith because that's what this is really about. They are also stalled out. So what does Jesus do? I mean, I can't help but wonder in this moment if Jesus doesn't feel completely alone. The religious leaders don't get him. His own disciples don't get him. Even the villages they go through, they just want more miracles. Give us more bread. They don't get it either. Nobody is getting what Jesus is actually about. He came to bring the good news of the kingdom of God. He came to save people. Nobody's getting it. And Jesus has had enough. And so he does this. And we move into our passage. Verse 13 Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, all right, this is what he does. These people don't get him. He's frustrated, so he leaves. His own disciples don't get him. He says, your faith is messed up right now. You have little faith. You're not seeing the right thing. So he takes them 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. He brings them away from where everybody knows him, where he's been teaching and doing most of his ministry. And he goes to Caesarea Philippi. Now this city has been rebuilt by Philip the Tetrarch, which is why it's Caesarea Philippi. And it has been filled by temples and statues, icons of all of these Roman gods. So Jesus brings his own right into the middle of all of these other gods. And he does this. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And in Greek, it's something like this. Who are people saying I am? Kind of like as we walk into a village and I'm teaching and there's some folks over by a building kind of whispering to each other, what are they saying? As we leave a village and people continue to talk, what is the word on the streets about who I am? That's his question. So remember the setup. Nobody's getting him. You've got faith issues. You've got pride issues. You've got just demands for signs. And so he walks away from all of it. And he looks at his own right in the middle. Just picture it. You know, a temple over here and some icons and statues. And he says, who is it? What are they saying about me? And the disciples begin to answer. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. These are pretty big names. Some people think you're John the Baptist who came back from the dead after Herod cut his head off. Some people think you're the Elijah. You're that prophet that Malachi was talking about that would come before the end. Some people think you're Jeremiah, 
or one of these other amazing prophets. Now, as they're giving their reports, Jesus cuts them off. He said to them, but, and you can imagine it, again, keep the image. Who do people say that I am? And they can even look around and and be seeing all of these things around them and seeing these temples and things. And they begin to say, well, some of this, and some people think this, and some people think this, and buts. And he stops them. But who do you say that I am? And this is the key. But who do you say that I am? At the very heart of them being stalled out, at the very heart of this you of little faith at the heart of the Pharisees and the Sadducees still demanding signs is this question, who is Jesus? That identity is everything. I taught at Trinity Christian Academy for a number of years and I taught juniors and seniors in Bible And one year when I was teaching junior Bible, I had an issue with my car. Now, we took it to a dealer that we go to all the time. They have always treated us very well, very fair. The work they said they would do, that's what they did. Prices were good. It was Huffines in Plano. But this one time, I brought my car in, and when I got it back, they had done things to it that they didn't tell me they were going to do, And the price was not what they said it was going to be, and it was not lower. And I was pretty frustrated. And I didn't realize all of the whole bit of it until I'd gotten home. And I was looking over everything and realizing. And so I called them. I couldn't get a hold of anybody that could really help. They're like, you got to talk to a manager. So I tried that. I kept trying to get through. And that day, I couldn't do it. And so the next day, I go to school. And I'm still frustrated. I'm still agitated about this whole thing. And in between my first and second period class, I'm calling them. And on the phone, I'm frustrated. And I'm just, why are you not? I'm trying to get a manager. I'm trying to get answers. And two students walk into my room. And I recognize I got these two young boys in my room. I kind of move toward a corner because I'm not really sure the things coming out of my mouth are appropriate, especially because I'm a Bible teacher. And so I move over to the corner to get away from them, and I eventually have to get off the phone. They walk up to me, and one of them says, Mr. Bowman, can I help you with that problem? Now, I was frustrated already. Part of me wanted to laugh at that. I mean, my juniors, they could barely get out of bed to get to school. I'm not really sure what they were planning on doing to help me with my car problems with this dealer. I mean, how in the world are they going to help Huffines do anything with my car? And I said, no, 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 Sam, you you can't do anything to help me. And he says, Mr. Bowman, are you sure I can't help you? And I, Sam, no, like there's nothing you can do. It's okay. Why don't you guys just go sit down? Well, the boy next to him goes, Mr. Bowman, do you know who this is? And I said, well, of course I know who it is. This is Sam Huffines. It was Sam Huffines. Literally, it was the son of the owner of the Huffine dealership. And I went, yes, Sam, you can help me. Please help me. I don't know what to do, but I know you do. And Sam pulls out his cell phone, which he was not supposed to have, and he just calls his dad. (laughs) 
you see, identity means everything. When I thought of Sam as a junior in my Bible class, what in the world was Sam going to be able to do about my problem? But when I realized that Sam was Sam Huffines, when I realized he was the son of the owner, now I understand why his identity changes everything. If you are feeling stalled out in your faith, the identity of Jesus can change everything. It can radically change everything. Look what happens. Come back into the text with me. Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And just hear those words right in the middle of all of the dead icons and temples, all of these gods that aren't real. You are the son of the living God. And I think Jesus' response here, and Jesus answered him, I don't think he said this like he was some stuffy old you know, pastor or priest or somebody who's going, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. I think Jesus is overjoyed right now. I think when Peter says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the one that we have been looking for and waiting for, you are the one that is going to change everything. You are the son of the living God. I think Jesus got a huge smile on his face because he has been so frustrated. He just walked his disciples 25 miles away from their normal ministry area so that he could get this across and somebody gets it. And I think Jesus went, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I think Jesus is excited Because this is the key. I think Jesus would say it like this. When you fully believe who I really am, I can then do what I really want to do in your life. When you believe who I am, I can do what I want to do in your life. Because the heart of it is who he is what he can do in all of our lives. And I think there's three big things because that confession of faith leads Jesus to say this to Peter. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those are big words. But they come on the heels of Peter getting who Jesus really is. So that, and let me explain what these mean here for a moment. I tell you, you are Peter. And this is a play on words. And on this rock, so Peter's name means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there's a lot of debate here from a Roman Catholic side. This is a passage that establishes the first pope and all popes that follow. An extreme reaction to that on some of the Protestant side is to say that rock here is not Peter. It's either Jesus or it's that confession itself. You are the Christ. Here's the thing. The most natural reading of this text 
is Jesus goes, you are Peter, the rock, and on you I'm going to build my church. That doesn't mean he's the first pope and all popes go from him and have this authority. What it means is exactly what we see in the scriptures. You go to John 21, it's to Peter that Jesus says, feed my sheep. You go to Acts chapter 1, it's Peter who stands up and says, we need a 12th disciple. You go to Acts chapter 2, it's Peter who stands up among the crowd after the Holy Spirit has fallen and gives the first gospel presentation. You go to Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5, you will see Peter do the first healing. You will see Peter who does the first discipline in the church. You will see Peter who has to go to the Samaritans before the Spirit will come. You'll see Peter in Cornelius' house where the sheet comes down and they can now say that sheet full of food, the dietary laws are off the, dietary laws are off the table. You see, Jesus used Peter in this early formation of the church to lead the charge. But let's look very carefully at the language. I tell you, you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Yes, he will use Peter, but it will be Jesus working in Peter. I'm going to come back to that. And then he says, and the gates of hell, and unfortunately, I don't think that's a great translation of that word because it makes us think of like eternity where bad people might go or makes us think of demons or something. It's the word Hades, and it really should be translated something like death. Because what is death? It is the one enemy that nobody can defeat except for Jesus. That enemy will not defeat what Jesus will do through Peter and through everybody else in his church. So when he says the gates of hell will not prevail, it's not so much about demons and devils as it is even death cannot defeat what I'm going to do. And then he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is Jesus working with Peter. Did you know that God wants to partner with us? Not equally, he does the the heavy lifting, but he actually wants us to work with him. And this is something like, do you remember when he sends out the disciples two by two? And he sends them out and he says, go into the villages and preach the gospel. And if people listen, go into their homes, they will know salvation. But if they reject you, shake the dust off your feet and walk out of that village. That's a use of the keys of the kingdom. That is where you are saying either you're, accepting them in because they received Christ or they've rejected Christ and you are shaking the dust from your feet in judgment, which is what that image is, and you're walking on and keeping going. But all of this happens, why? Because, Jesus, because Peter understands and confesses and believes who Jesus really is in a similar way to me going, oh my goodness, it's Sam Huffines. When I knew that, it changed everything. When you recognize that he is the son of God, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. When you recognize that he can defeat death and sin and the devil. When all of that is part of who we know he is. It can radically change our lives and unstall us. And I think there's three ways. Number one, when you believe who Jesus really is, you can then do far more than you could ever do on your own. Because just like with Peter, it is now Christ who is working in and with you. With Peter, he says, I will build my church. It's in you. I will do this in you. He will do things in us, church. When we believe, 
when we follow. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. He will do things with us. When Jesus works in and with us, we can do things we would never be able to do without him. That is where our strength comes from. That is where our wisdom comes from. That is where we can step out and accomplish things we would never be able to do. That's when our own limitations, and we all have them, whether they're our failures or our sins, our own insecurities, our fears, when we are relying on Christ and he is working in and with us, those limitations do do not have to be limitations in serving him. He can accomplish so much. So, number one, when we believe who Jesus is, we can do far more than we would ever be able to do because he is working in and with us. Number two, when he is working with and in us, everything we do, even the most mundane tasks, can have eternal significance. Do you know that when Jesus is working in and with you, you do not have to conquer the world to do something significant, to be unstalled in your life. Because when he is working with and in you, that means even the most mundane has value. Think about a few passages with me. Jesus tells some servants to do a very simple mundane task. Go fill those water jars up with water. And then what does Jesus do with that simple mundane task? He miraculously changes the water into wine. A lady comes one time when Jesus is sitting at a well and it starts as a very simple conversation. He just wants a drink. But in that very simple mundane conversation, do you know what happens? This woman comes to faith, goes to a village, shares with them. The village comes to Jesus And John tells us they start believing in Jesus, not just because of what the woman said, but because of Jesus' own words. All of that took place in a mundane conversation that started with, can I have a drink? Think about what happens in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, if you give somebody a cup of water, if you go visit somebody in prison, you'll be rewarded for that when you do it again for me when you do it with me, when you do it and I'm in you. Because the simplest, most mundane tasks take on eternal significance when we recognize who he is and that he can work through everything. It reminds me of what Paul says in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Why? Because he can take even the most mundane tasks and make them special. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment and it is a vestment to him. He goes forth to his labor and exercises the office of priesthood. You housemaids, you cooks, you nurses, you plowmen, you housewives, you traders, you sailors. Your labor is holy if you serve the Lord Christ in it. He has made the common pots and pans of your kitchens to be as the bowls before the altar if you know what you are and live according to your high calling. 
And why do we have a high calling? Because we serve the Son of God. We serve the Messiah who died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when we believe in him and who he really is, whatever we do has eternal significance when it is done for him, in him, with him. And lastly, when you believe who he really is, Jesus will change what you can go through. He will give you a perseverance, a way of seeing life that will allow you to go through the hardest of circumstances in ways you may never be able to go through them without him. Hey, think about Peter's life. One of the things that happens in the book of Acts early on is Peter gets arrested and imprisoned, and then they beat him and let him go. Do you know what he does when he goes? After being imprisoned and beaten because he was preaching Jesus, he rejoices because he got to suffer for the Lord Jesus. Now that's a weird response unless you believe so firmly in who he is and what your eternal destiny is and what he has for you and that he's always faithful and always with you. Paul, at one point, he's writing to Timothy. And at the end, he says, nobody came to my defense, but the Lord was still with me. You see, they have this idea that God is just with them all the time. That this God will take them through no, no matter what they go through. And you know if you read Paul's life, I mean, he goes through so many awful, horrible things. And yet, he can go through those things because he believes that Jesus can do anything. He even says it in Philippians. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, he believes, he has always has hope because Jesus is faithful, powerful, and works in his life. And I saw this in a story back in 2014. Just listen to this story of somebody who really believed who Jesus is and what it allowed this person to do in such a terrible, difficult circumstance in their life. On April 27th, 2014, an EF4 tornado tore through at least 40 miles of Arkansas. In a home in Villania with a red front door, a tornado ripped the home off the foundations and destroyed it. Daniel and April Smith had moved into the home just a month before the tragedy with their two boys, an eight-year-old named Cameron, a seven-year-old named Tyler. Daniel and April were both hurt, but the two boys were both lost in the tornado. Their story was told by a really good friend named Jessica, and this is their story. Jessica writes this, I've always called her the cheerleader, that's April, because she, was, she once was one in the pom-poms and pyramid sense, but because she still is now in a Bible and faith sense, she's the one who I call when my faith is stretched. And every time I hang up the phone with her, I've been reminded of how big 
and how good and how faithful my God is. Well, I've spent these last couple of days angry, questioning why would God take those boys and why would he take the best cheerleader he had? Because who is going to keep cheering after this? The thing is, my faith is not April's faith. And my beautiful friend, my cheerleader, laid in a hospital bed with her broken legs and battered beautiful face and held my hands and told me not to be angry because her God is good. I have peace, she told me last night through her tears. I know I have more pain to go through that I probably can't understand, but I have a supernatural peace. I don't know what God has for me and my husband, that our boys couldn't be here for it, but I do know that God is good, and his plan is good. And Jessica says this, I don't understand this kind of faith, because I think every parent who has heard this story since Sunday has wondered, how do you live through this? For those of you who have been worried about April and Daniel, worried that they would not be the same, that they could not carry on past this loss, please don't worry. I have seen her hope. It is anchored in eternity. It is the kind of hope that saves people. And it's not just the optimist in me talking. For those of you wondering how a mother could serve a God that might allow this to happen, understand this first. Tyler and Cameron knew Jesus. Just a couple of weeks ago, they led a friend to Christ. They aren't over. Their story hasn't reached the end. And somehow, through every bit, though every bit of that house was ripped from the foundation, April and Daniel, they will still live. And they're going to tell the story of Tyler and Cameron's lives. And masses of people are going to know Jesus because of it. Well, when I left the hospital, I just cried. And I thought, she is so strong. She is so faithful. She is so selfless. And then it hit me. And hear this. April is all of these things because she allows herself, even in the midst of this tragedy, to be a reflection of our strong, selfless, beautiful, faithful Savior. She believes in him. When Jessica turned to leave the room, she asked April if she could take a photo of her or if she'd like her to take a photo of her to post it. And this was April's response. Yes, because I want you to show them what my God can overcome. When we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, it can allow Jesus to work in our lives in profound and radical ways where everything we do, not only is it more than we could ever do on our own, but even the mundane can take on an eternal significance. And when we go through our most difficult moments and we know that that faithful God who defeated death and rose from the dead, is with us, cares for us, is working in and with us, 
we can also see those difficult circumstances as April saw hers. My God can overcome. But we must see him for who he is so that we will listen when he speaks. When I first started learning to drive a stick, I was out on this road doing 45 miles an hour and all of a sudden I heard a train and we were gonna cross this track and the lights were coming down. I was so new to driving a stick and suddenly it just all went nuts in my head. There were multiple pedals down there. I'm holding on to the steering wheel and I'm not sure even what to do. My brain is screaming, you gotta break, you gotta stop, you gotta do something. But I'm thinking I gotta push the clutch in and I gotta pull this off and, I gotta, and I'm freaking out. And through all of the chaos, I heard my dad's voice slam on the brake. Again, slam on the brake. You see, I didn't need the steering wheel. I didn't need my own head. I didn't need all the stuff out there. I needed to hear this voice of the one that I knew, knew how to drive this vehicle and had been doing it. And when I could hear that voice among everything else and just follow that voice, well, I slammed on that brake and that truck just, but we did not hit that train. Will you listen as the Son of God says to you this morning, who do you say that I am? Because if you know that I am the Son of the living God and you will let that root in you and you will let me work in you and with you, your entire life can be radically different and you will no longer be stalled out because the Son will be driving your life. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus, for everything that he has done and everything that he is. Lord, if we can just keep our eyes fixed on him, knowing who he really is, no matter our circumstances, no matter what we're trying to accomplish, that our faithful God is with us and that he is our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord who can conquer all things. Thank you for Jesus, our faithful Savior. In his name, amen.